Good morning again. If you're just getting here, welcome to Kahului Baptist Church. The title of the sermon this morning is called Definite Atonement. Definite Atonement. Now you would think with a uh, passage like this, husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her, that this would be a sermon on marriage, wouldn't you? But actually, no, we're It's not a sermon on marriage. It's not Valentine's Day. What's coming up in a few days is what holiday? Aha, Hallow Reformation Day, right? (laughs) Hallowation Day, right? So uh, Reformation Day, also known, you could uh, celebrate in our context, Halloween, as you'll be getting candy. But we have been focusing on the doctrines of the Reformation, We have embarked on a sermon series through which we are trying to aim and give an overview of the doctrine of salvation, how it is that we are saved. Now, salvation is something we speak about a lot, don't we? You came to Christ, you know, give your life to Jesus, you, you've been redeemed by the blood of the Lamb, redeemed, right, all these types of things, but, but what does it actually mean, and and how does it actually play out, and what are the different facets of it, and so we've kind of taken this study and are looking into these things. Specifically, we've been offering an introduction into what is known as the doctrines of grace, the doctrines of grace. Other names for these are, some of you are familiar with, or some of you are hearing it for the first time, the names don't really matter as much as what it teaches, but the five points of Calvinism, perhaps you have heard of it called, or a reformed understanding of God's work in salvation is another way you might hear this described. The five points, there are five things, summed up using an acrostic that spells tulip tulip, like a flower. Total depravity, T. Total depravity, unconditional election, limited atonement, irresistible grace, and the perseverance of the saints. Tulip. We have switched the order a little bit for various reasons, and we aren't looking at it in the order of the flower, but in order of the manner in which we experience it is tiop. Tiop. It's not as pretty as a flower, but uh, that's how we have been walking through it. We are in our fourth sermon, and so this one we will talk about in a minute. But as I said last week, the label is not something I mind, neither is it something I champion. It merely serves as a shorthand way to describe a system of beliefs when everybody says they believe the Bible, including heretics, false teachers of every kind, shape, and form. And so the labels, much like as we are called Kahului Baptist Church, functions as a shorthand for you to understand a certain set of distinctives that identify a church or a Lutheran church or a Methodist church. These are functional titles. Whether they're helpful or not depends on a number of things. It's simply shorthand. I've been encouraged, as I've seen many of you encountering Uh, sorry, uh, working through, wrestling through these doctrines. You're trying to, uh, you're hearing what's being preached, and then you're trying to, but what about this, and what about that, and how does this play out, and and what about this doctrine, and that's a good thing. That is a good thing. That is a good process for you to engage in. 
You're trying to link doctrines and teachings in a proper manner. Just wrestling with it yourself is going to really help you engage others more meaningfully. Just going through it yourself, you can know when you encounter others, either talking to them about the gospel or anything, it's just going to help you engage others more meaningfully. I want to reiterate a need for patience and love as these things are discussed. Patience, because these are challenging doctrines. The Apostle Peter, writing in his letter about Paul, the Apostle, he said, our brother Paul has written some things that are hard to understand, which tells us there are some doctrines in the Bible that are kind of hard to chew on, aren't they? Every now and then you get a big piece of steak, like Nick Tanaka likes to eat steak, and he's really good at making it. And you you get a piece of steak, and you just got to chew on it for a little bit. The Bible has some doctrines that need to be mulled over, chewed on. Today, this subject matter, this is the the meat of the word. There's, There's not a lot of milk here. There's no milkshakes today. I'll do my best to give you steak and shake, but that's all I can do. No milkshakes. This will be meat. You'll have to think on it and chew on it. So be patient with the sermon series. Be patient with one another. And I just want to say, if you're struggling with these things, I have lots and lots of patience for those who struggle with these things because I was in your shoes. I was in your shoes once upon a time. And I have a lot of patience and a lot of grace for wrestling with and through these things. I think I, I, can, I know every point, I know every counterpoint, I know every question, I know every cross-reference that you probably are thinking through as you're hearing these things. And so I have a lot of patience uh, for you. I know how this can grate against your conceptions of God. So why go through it? If this is a challenge, why go through it? I think God is honored when we take him at his word. Amen? God is honored when we wrestle with his word. I would remind you, Jacob had to wrestle with the angel before the blessing came. Amen? And so in time, I hope you see that these doctrines don't make God smaller. They don't make him less loving. They don't make him less gracious. They show him to be more so. They show him to be the God who is mighty to save and actually saves to the uttermost. And so I ask you to hear it with an open mind if it's your first time. Or if you've never seriously heard anybody teach in favor of it, I ask that you would pay special attention. So let's pray and we'll get started I ask that through your word being preached by the power of your spirit that we could say with the psalmist, one thing I have asked of the Lord, that will I also seek, that I may gaze upon the beauty of the Lord and dwell in your house and in your temple all the days of our life. God, may that be our aim and our desire, that as we hear these truths preached, that we would see your beauty that we would long to see you more, and that we would worship you in response to these things. 
I also lift up our sister churches, Maui Philippine Baptist Church, and Pastor Bong, and the ministry he is undergoing there to teach your people and nourish them on the word. Would you bless that ministry and bless that church? May they grow in love and holiness and in steadfastness in all things. I also lift up Pastor Elif at Makakilo Baptist in Kapolei. I pray for the elders and the deacons there. I ask that you would fill them with love, with joy, and God, may they pour themselves out for the flock, and may you reap a mighty harvest on the west side of Oahu this morning. And God, we do lift up all of the churches where your word is preached. May you do a mighty, mighty work in your churches and in our communities for the glory and praise of Christ. In Jesus' name, amen. I have two points. Number one, definite atonement. Number one, definite atonement. Number two, actual redemption. That will be our application portion of the sermon, actual redemption. So we'll start out with definite atonement. Today, we come to the fourth sermon in our TLP. We've got one more, and then we'll do some, uh, a wrap-up sermon and some Q&A. That'll happen in November. If you have questions, I do invite them. You can write them in, submit them, text them, email them, whatever you want with them. I invite, them, uh, invite those questions and anything I say. Today, we come to the fourth sermon on limited atonement. Limited atonement atonement. It's also called definite atonement. Another name you'll hear it called is particular redemption. Those are all three different terms that are used to describe this doctrine. One reason why some don't like the term limited atonement is because it can confuse things. The reason is because everybody limits the atonement in some way, shape, or form. So we're not the only ones that believe and limited atonement. Others believe in a limited atonement. The only person who does not believe in a limited atonement would be a universalist, somebody who believes that all people will go to heaven in the end. Those are the only people who do not limit the atonement. That is blatant heresy. So that's why some people choose to have a different term for it, definite atonement, particular redemption I'll say, my own testimony, this is the point I struggled with the most. This is the one that was the hardest for me. I wrestled with it the longest. It was the last one I conceded on. It's often the most controversial. I think that's largely due to miscommunication and lack of clarity. The subject is often framed with the question, for whom did Christ die? That's how the subject is often framed. For whom did Christ die? Now, when the answer comes, for the elect alone, now you feel the controversy, don't you? Instantly. You feel the tension. Wait, no. Jesus died for the world. He died, right? You start to go through all this. What you're going to see we have seen in our time together that all people are totally depraved. They are unable in their own natural estate because of sin to respond to any work of God. They are spiritually dead, blind, and incapable of doing that which is pleasing to God. Total depravity. We saw, therefore, because of that, God overcomes, graciously overcomes. He doesn't have to. 
We all deserve what? Death. Judgment. Yesterday, before we were ever even born, we deserve judgment. Total depravity. So God overcomes in his grace our rebellion and draws us to himself at his appointed time. Irresistible grace. We saw that in the life of Paul the Apostle in his own testimony. The question is, does God do that for everybody without exception? And the answer is no. Well, then for whom does he overcome their rebellion in this manner? The answer, unconditional election. Those whom God chooses in eternity past for his own purposes and reason. Nothing conditioned on the person. And now what we're going to find is that those whom the Father chose, the Son redeems. Those whom the Father chose, the Son redeems. We are going to see that the Trinity, the Godhead, is in absolute harmony and union in everything they do. We're going to see this. Let's go back to that question. For whom... Did Christ die? Many of you would reply, maybe with John 6, 316, right? For God so loved the, the world that he gave his only begotten son, right? We know this passage. It's a beautiful passage, an important passage. And so we would draw all kinds of passages together that talk about everybody, all, the world, and, and surmise that Christ died for everybody. Thus, we have this unlimited atonement idea. His atoning work of Jesus was unlimited in scope. It was for all people, for everywhere, without exception. That's how many people would answer that question. And that sounds really loving, doesn't it? Man, God's love is so big, it just it, it's all, it covers the world, everybody, without exception. He died, Christ died for everybody, such that if you were the only sinner that ever responded, it would have been worth it. We, we talk like this, and it sounds good. Let's tease it out, though. Let's see the implications. One of the things that happens today is that we don't think hard or clearly about what we say and what it means, and what it implies. And so let's tease out to see the implications of that kind of speaking and why it's a little bit of a problem biblically, and it's not as comforting as it might sound. So I'm going to tease that out through a series of questions. So let me ask you this. This is you. I'm assuming this is where most of you would answer, yes, Jesus dying for everybody. This is how I would have answered at one point in my life, yes. And there's nuances of truth, which is why this can be confusing. So let's tease it out and be specific. Did Christ die on the cross for sinners? Yes or no? Yes. That's our fighter verse, isn't it? Did Christ die on the cross, bearing the wrath of God for all sins of all people? You don't have to answer. You're, you're starting to feel, I, I would imagine some of you are like, well, I think so, right? All right? Did he die for everybody the same way? Yes. Did he die for, as a wrath-bearing sacrifice for all the sins of all people? You might say yes. 
That's what I said. That's what it means. Let me ask you this. Did he die for some of the sins of all people or all of the sins of all people? You might say, all the sins of all people. He died. That's what it means to die for sins for everybody. Okay? You might say, Jesus died for all their sins. That's what we sing. Jesus paid it all. Okay? If he died for all of their sins and bore the wrath of God, does that include the sin of unbelief? Does that include the sin of unbelief? Ask yourself that question. Did Okay, so Jesus died for all the sins of all people. What does that mean? He died as a wrath-bearing sacrifice. Did he die for the sin of unbelief? Well, he commands all people everywhere to repent and believe. So did he die for the sin of unbelief as well? Uh Uh-oh. You might start feeling the pressure here. Your answers are demanding you to say something, but you feel the, the tension of answering now. You may say, yes, all the sins of all men, since you already committed to that answer, and that's what it kind of seems. Yes, he died for the sin of unbelief. Then you have to consider this. Why does anyone, why does anyone go to hell? If he died as a wrath-bearing sacrifice for all the sins of all men, then why do some people go to hell? On what grounds will God punish anyone in hell? Will he punish their sin of unbelief twice? First, at the cross of Christ where he punished all the sins of all people on Jesus, and then after he'll punish you again for that same sin for which Christ already died? What do we call that? Double jeopardy. Even our own courts recognize the injustice of that. You cannot punish the same sin or same transgression twice. Therefore, you either have to say, that Christ unnecessarily suffered and that God will punish sin twice, or you have to say that everybody will go to heaven. You see? Either Christ paid the penalty, absorbed the wrath of God for all sins of all people without exception, therefore, all people will go to heaven. Nobody should suffer in hell under the wrath of God for sin already atoned for by Jesus, you see? Oh, wait, you say. Wait, 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 wait. We're good. No, no, no. It's like the Passover. It's like the Passover. Christ's death made provision for all sins of all people, but like the Israelites at Passover, we have to what? We have to apply the door, the blood on our doorposts, right, for it to be effective. And so we say things like God's death or his atoning work was sufficient for all people, but only efficient for some. That's true on the face of it, but it doesn't answer our question. So that helps. You say, well, he made provision for all people, but it's only efficient for some, or sorry, it's only effective for some. That helps, but now you've created another problem and another question. You say, okay, yep, I, I, 
I felt relief when you said that, but now what's the, new, what's the new problem and the new question? Here's the new question, if that's the case. What did Jesus' death actually accomplish? That's your new question and your new problem. What did Jesus' death actually accomplish? When Jesus said on the cross, it is finished. What was finished? And what did he accomplish, if anything? See, Jesus said in Luke 19, 11 of himself that he came to seek and to save the lost. He came to seek and to save the lost. So we ask, did the death of Jesus actually save anyone? Or did he merely make men savable? Did he actually save anyone? Or did he merely make people savable? Did his atoning work actually make atonement, as the New Testament says it did? Or did it merely make atonement possible? That's your new question and your new problem, you see. Did he save anybody? ask a whole string of more questions. We could be here a long time picking at this to see the problems. But I'd suggest, along with the New Testament, I would argue, that Jesus' death actually accomplished more than making men savable. It actually saves. His death accomplished more than making salvation possible he actually purchased salvation for his people. He actually saved. Before we proceed, we need to think carefully about what we say. We need to distinguish between two things. We need to distinguish between impact and intent. Impact and intent. This is where a lot of the friction comes. Wait, but God loves the world. He, he died, and, and that, that impacts everybody. Like, that's for everybody, yes. But we need to distinguish between these two things. Let me give you an example. President Obama would often come to Hawaii for vacation for his family, for R&R, to get some downtime. He would go to the island of Oahu, and when he would land on Oahu, he would go there for vacation, but because of the motorcades and security, they would shut down highways, they would shut down streets, entire stretches of road for hours at a time. If you've ever been to Oahu, you know how crippling this is for travel and getting around. It's already horrendous, much less when you close the main thoroughfares. And so President Barack Obama would come for vacation, but his purpose in coming was not to throw off all the islands, was not to throw off the travel on Oahu. His purpose was to come for what? For vacation, for his family. But the impact impacted everybody, you see? So we need to distinguish between impact and intent. So it is with the death of Christ. We could ask, did his death impact everybody on this planet without exception? The answer, absolutely, yes. Yes, it did. It impacted all people. But what was its saving design or intent? 
You see, this is where the answer, sufficient for all, efficient for some, is true, but it doesn't answer the question. What was his saving intent? That's what we're looking at. With our remaining time, having raised several issues with the popular understanding of Christ's death, I want to briefly answer the following three questions. Number one, what did the death of Christ accomplish? What did the death of Christ accomplish? Number two, for whom did he accomplish this? For whom did he accomplish this? Accomplish this thinking intent. And number three, why does it matter? Why does it matter? I'll remind you, this is an overview. So I'm not going to say everything there is to say on this topic. It is massive, massive, all right? If you have questions, submit the questions on something I left out. I'll pick it up in the afterthought. Like, what about 2 Peter 3? Uh, the Lord is not willing that any should perish, but that all should come to repentance. What about that? What about 1, 1 Timothy 4.10? What about 1 John 2.2? He's a propitiation for our sins, not for our sins only, but also for the sins of the whole world. What about John the Baptist? Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. I got you. I, I know the passages, right? I'm here. So uh, we're not going to address any of that today. Just we'll take too much time unless you want to be here till 5 p.m. Let's start with number one, it's an introduction overview. What did the death of Christ accomplish? While there are impacts on all people, we'll talk about this another time, the short answer is it secured the common grace of God on all people. We'll talk about more of that later, but that's what it does for all people. It secures the common grace of God for all people and delays his wrath. While, the death of, while there are impacts on all people, the death of Christ actually and completely satisfied the wrath of God for sinners and secured all the benefits of salvation for his people to guarantee their ultimate redemption. It satisfied the wrath of God for sinners and secured all the benefits of salvation for his people to guarantee their ultimate redemption. That's what it did. Satisfied God's wrath, secured salvation for his people. Oh dear, what scripture could we look at? Any of them? We just pick a, just throw a rock in the New Testament. You could, you could play the, the roulette game, the scripture roulette. Just open your Bible and start reading, and you'll, you'll find this. You'll see how, how our redemption, how the cross work of Christ is spoken about in the past tense, completed. He atoned. He reconciled. He redeemed. He propitiated. He, all of these things, past tense, completed. There's a ton. Perhaps the whole book of Hebrews would be a good place to start. Maybe the first half of Romans, specifically chapter 3 and 4. But I'll just read one verse, because we don't have all day. One verse, Hebrews chapter 2, verse 17. Hebrews 2, verse 17. What I want you to see in this passage is I want you to look at the past tense use of the word. Past tense and completed final picture of the cross work of Christ. Hebrews 2, 17. Therefore, he had to be made, I don't like jumping in the middle of verses, so I apologize, because I know therefore is linked to a whole argument and it's concluding, all right, so 
Bear with us. Therefore, he had to be made like his brothers in every respect, so that he might become a merciful and faithful high priest in the service of God. And here it is, to what? To make propitiation for the sins of his people. Who's he talking about? Jesus. During what? The incarnation, during his time on earth. And he's saying he had to be made like his brother. Why? So he could become a merciful, faithful high priest in service to God to make propitiation. And that propitiation, the book of Hebrews fleshes out, was made completely, perfectly. Now you say, what does propitiation mean? The word propitiation is a fun and important word. It's a big word. We don't use it much today. It means simply, not so simply, a wrath-bearing sacrifice. That's what the word propitiate means, a wrath-bearing sacrifice. The whole Old Testament law is built on this, the, the law of with having to slay bulls and goats. See, there is a substitute that occurred in the Old Testament. Israel deserved to die, and in their place, they could offer a lamb or a bull, and instead of them dying, the lamb would die in their place, propitiate the wrath of God for a season. That's what Jesus' death on the cross was all about. This doctrine of substitutionary, penal atonement is at the very heart of the gospel. It's at the very heart of the gospel. And Jesus died as a propitiation for sinners. The book of Hebrews views the priestly work of Christ in his sacrifice, offering up of himself, and his intercession as complete and supreme. Therefore, it says in Hebrews chapter 7, Jesus is able to save to the uttermost those who draw near to God through him. So that's the answer to the first question, the short answer. That's worth a sermon series in itself. What did Jesus' death ac accomplish? In short, it secured salvation. In short, it secured salvation. Next question. For whom, here we go, did Christ secure salvation? For whom did he secure salvation? The passage we read today is a beautiful passage. Ephesians chapter 5. We'll read it again in a second. Husbands, love your wife as Christ loved the church. It's a beautiful passage, isn't it? We had it read at our marriage ceremonies. You've heard it read. This also teaches us that husbands, here's your application. This one's for free. Husbands, you need to be a theologian. All husbands must be theologians. You cannot be lazy in the scriptures. Say, why? Hear what it says. Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her. Which means every husband, every man who hopes to have a wife one day must know what that means. How did Christ love the church? How did he give himself up for her? This is the stuff of theology. You thought you just needed to have a job and to provide for your wife, didn't you? No. Scarlet, if anybody ever comes to pursue her, They'll need to be a theologian. 
They will get no, no dates, no nothing without that. That's what I want to know is, can you love her like Christ loved the church? We'll start there. What's that mean? Go back, go home, get out of here. Every husband must be a theologian. For whom did Christ secure salvation? Ephesians chapter 5, verse 25. Let's read it together. Here it is on the screen. Listen to this. Look what it says. What's the pattern and what does it say about Christ? Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church. Let me ask you, remember our question, for whom did he accomplish this securing of salvation? Ask that question. And gave himself up for who? For her. That he might sanctify her, having cleansed her by the washing of water with the word, so that he might present the church to himself in splendor, without spot or wrinkle or any such thing, that she might be holy and without blemish. That's a beautiful passage on atonement. That's a beautiful passage on what Christ accomplished. If you read John's prayer and, uh, sorry, Jesus' prayer in John 17, we read this in our small group this past prayer night, and it, Jesus says in that prayer in John 17, I, I don't pray for the world. I pray for those whom you have given me out of the world. I pray for them. He intercedes for the same ones for whom he died. Again, intent versus impact. Yes, it impacts all people, but who was he intent for? This Ephesians 5 passage alone would qualify universal language of this kind of every man, every woman, the world. This would qualify that passage, th that type of language. Why? Every woman should say amen to this, by the way. This should qualify universal language. Why? Let's go back to the beginning. If we say God loves all people equally, without exception, without distinction, he loves everybody the same way, now Paul just exhorted men to love their wives like Christ loved the church, and we don't recognize that God has a special love for his people. What did Paul just tell husbands to do? To love their wives like, he, like every other woman in the world. Yeah, your eyes are like, what? Absolutely not. That's not what Paul's saying. We know that. Why? Because we recognize God has a special love for his people, for his people. Does he love the world? Yes. Yes, he loves the world. Does he love everybody in the same way? No, he doesn't. Is that unfair? Is it? Is that unloving? Does he have to love everybody the same way? Let me ask you this. Oh man, do you love me the same way you love your wife? <laughs> you see, I hope not. I hope not. Please keep that love to yourself and to your wife. You see, you don't love me. Well, are you being unloving then? How dare you? You don't love me. You say, it's foolish, right? Do you love me the same way you even love your children? Depends on the day. 
right? We see we distinguish in our expressions of love, don't we? That is right and appropriate. It would be inappropriate if you loved me the same way you loved your spouse. That would be inappropriate, sinful even. We recognize our own inherent distinguishing and manifesting of our love. If we can do that, how dare we deny God the prerogative to love? A fallen world at that. You see, our love, this is why these things are important, because we are so man-centered in our thinking. We have to start with God, His rights, His kingship, His kingdom, not ours. The ground of a man's love for his wife is rooted in the pattern of Christ's love for his bride, the church. And this love for his people moved him. It moved him to give himself up to redeem her, to cleanse her, to wash her with the word, and to bring her to himself. That's the beauty of the atonement. That's the beauty of Christ's priestly work. So what's the answer? Who? was the object of Christ's atoning work, the answer, at least from Ephesians 5, is his bride, the church, his people. He loved them and gave himself up for them. There's more to say on that for sure, a lot more, a lot more. Let's move on, number three. Why does this matter? Why does this matter? Well, all this matters, right? Okay, my brain hurts, Pastor Randy. Why did you do this to me? What's the point? Number one, this matters because the gospel matters. This matters because the gospel matters. Some people say, I hear this often about these types of things from lots of people, People have been arguing about this stuff forever. Why even talk about it? If all, if after all this time, we still can't agree. People have been arguing about these things forever. I'd remind you, I think it was Ronald Reagan that said, freedom is only one generation away from being extinct. I would remind you, the gospel is only one generation away from being lost in every generation. Each generation must reaffirm the truth of the gospel and sound doctrine. Ask yourself, how is it, have you ever, how is it that institutions like, like Yale and Harvard that were e explicitly Christ-centered and biblical in their founding, how do they drift? You say, well, that's Yale, Harvard, that's the mainland. How is it that churches in our community are flying a rainbow flag over their church in Eyal Valley right now when at one time they were committed to the Bible? How does that happen? The answer is we are never more than one generation away from losing the gospel. And at the very heart of the gospel is the doctrine of atonement, that Christ died as a substitute for sinners. And many today, many, too many, more than you could even imagine, because you're, you're probably just not even dialed into these things, many are abandoning not just, not the doctrine of limited atonement or unlimited, but atonement at all. They would say Christ died as an example that we should follow. As a pattern to show how much God hates sins, but as an atonement, no. 
This is contemporary context. These things are being said on shows like Oprah. Today, this year even. The atonement is at the very heart of the gospel. And I hope, Kahalui Baptist, you can hold me to this and I'll hold you to this. I hope I never get to a place where I stop wanting to open my Bible to discuss what God's word teaches in any given area. May God grant us to never get to that place where I stop wanting to open my Bible. In fact, the older I get, I'm in my sixth year as pastor, the older I get, the more ready and hopefully more helpful I should be to assist others in thinking through hard issues. And you should too. You should be able to say, man, this is a hard issue. Oh, man, let's, let's crack the scriptures open. This is, this is how I've thought through these things. This is what helped me. This is how I've understood them. Let's, let's look at the word. These things are worth discussing together because the gospel is always relevant. So it matters because the gospel matters. I would suggest if there's something that people argue over a lot, then it might be that that something is really important. There's, there's arguments in the history of the church that have come and gone and people don't don't mess with them a lot because they were, they were for that time, for that era. But things that stay should actually alert us to points of false teaching where Satan likes to twist the word. We shouldn't run from it because it's controversial. We should engage in it even more because that might be where the battleground is. And this has proven to be one of those places. Number two, why does it matter? It matters because my salvation is complete and secure. It matters because my salvation, your salvation, is complete and secure. All the gifts, all the gifts required for salvation were purchased by our Redeemer. The twin gifts of faith and repentance, for there is no salvation without repenting and believing, were secured by the work of Christ. The assurance of your salvation, how do you know you're saved? Can you know? How do you know 20 years from now you will be saved? How do you know at the end you will be saved? The only people, the only theological stream in history that treads and plows that field are those who believe these things, that Christ secured your salvation from start to finish at the cross of Christ. We're going to talk about that next week with our P, perseverance of the saints. Your salvation is secure, and so you can be confident you can work out your salvation with fear and trembling because it is God who is at work in you to will and to do of his good pleasure. Number three, it matters because coming to Jesus will cost you everything and following him will too. You say, huh, I didn't think about that one. Coming to Jesus, if you're here and you're a guest, I don't know what your spiritual life is with Christ, or maybe you're here and you're a believer. You've been one a long time, and you're just trying to follow him. You're struggling in obedience. Coming to Jesus and following him will cost you everything. 
And what is your confidence? What is your confidence that he will deliver or can deliver on his word? In other words, if it costs me everything, pastor, how do I know if it's worth it? How do I know? He died to save sinners, and he is able to save to the uttermost all who draw near to God through him. So if you come, if you're wondering, can Jesus Will he make a difference in my life? I've struggled with sin for so very long. Will I ever be free? Will I ever overcome this? The Bible screams, yes! Hear it again slowly if you missed it. Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her. Why? Listen close. That he might sanctify her. Having cleansed her by the washing of water with the word so that he might present the church to himself in splendor without spot and without blemish. She might be holy in his sight. Can he save you? Yes. Will he save you? Yes. Come today and you will find that Jesus is a mighty redeemer and he will never cast out all who come to him. That's why it matters. Number four, last one, it matters because we were made to worship. It matters because we, you, I, us, we were made to worship. I love, I really try hard as a pastor to, to take big theological concepts and, and flush it down the stream all the way to us at ground level. I love application. All sound doctrine is applicable. You can take it home. I love that. That is true. But not everything in life is concerned with making your life easier. Not everything in life is concerned with giving you a life hack. A pastoral life hack. We were made to worship and adore God. This doctrine matters because as we see that Christ actually purchased, actually redeemed us from start to finish, you can't help but worship Him. You can't help but see your sins at the cross atoned for, nailed to the cross, canceled out, never to be seen again. You can't help but sing praise that your sins are forgiven. And so, let us worship him now. We're about to sing in response to this great truth, these lines from In Christ Alone. And I hope you read it with a little bit different hue now. And as he stands in victory... Sin's curse has lost its grip on me. Here it is. For I am his, and he is mine, bought with the precious blood of Christ. Let's pray. Father, we have been bought with a price. Your only son, whom you have given, 
You say Christ suffered once for sins, the righteous for the unrighteous, that he might bring us to God. Father, there are some in here perhaps who have never heard that you suffered for them in their place if they will repent and believe, who may have never heard or considered that you will forgive them wholly, completely, and finally you will bring them to yourself if they will come. And so I pray this morning you would draw them, you would grant them faith and repentance, give them new life. And Father, there are some in here who are struggling in their Christian walk, wondering, is it worth it to follow Christ? This morning, may they see their salvation is secured, and they will be brought home to glory. Thank you for your word. May you help us to worship you in fullness and in clarity. In Jesus' name, amen.